Good morning, everybody. It's great to, to be with Mike again. We are, our um, paths in our career always seem to weave uh, together as we've gotten interested at about the same time with on HIV and worked on that for many years and then been able to uh, come and work in the Division of Viral Hepatitis for the last seven and eight years. And it's great to have Mike and other infectious disease physicians become increasingly interested in the management of hepatitis C. And that's the, I have to say, the, that care and treatment capacity that many infectious disease physicians and their um, staff have is sorely needed at this time for hepatitis uh, C. As I'll, I'll try to show you, we're really reaching a very critical uh, point in the um, epidemic of hepatitis C-related disease. And uh, one of the big issues is uh, the inadequate number of um, uh, practitioners uh, trained, equipped, and willing to take care uh, of this large uh, population of persons who are progressively becoming ill with this chronic infection. So what I'd like to do over my time is give you a little bit of the epidemiologic um, trends, both in incidence and prevalence and uh, burden of disease, and what are some of the prevention strategies that we have moved toward to respond um, to these um, uh, uh, epidemiologic um, uh, trends. Um, as you've already heard from Susanna, um, uh, for those who came early, uh, hepatitis uh, C um, morbidity um, uh, is fairly rare at the, at the point of acute infection. Uh, many, uh, if not most persons who become infected with hepatitis C have few or, or no symptoms, um, and that most of the di severe disease is related to the chronic infection, which persists in three out of every four persons, uh, roughly, uh, who become infected, remain infected essentially for life, and over time, uh, a, a subset of those will develop liver, inf liver inflammation leading to progressive um, liver disease, uh, cirrhosis, and then following cirrhosis, hepatocellular carcinoma becomes an, an increasing uh, risk. Um, as I'll show you later on in the, uh, in the program, um, our health models have estimated that um, over the lifetime of an infected individual, they have a, a more than one in three chance of dying of a hepatitis C-related um, disease. Uh, globally, uh, about 100, we estimate, or WHO estimates, about 170 million persons are infected with hepatitis C. It's one of the major causes of cirrhosis and, and liver cancer uh, globally. Uh, approximately 25% of persons with HIV are HCV uh, co-infected, with that proportion being much higher in, in some parts of the world. And that's strongly associated with uh, injection drug use uh, being a mode of transmission for HIV, where that's more common co-infection is more common. In the United States, based on our NHANES, or our National Health Survey, uh, we estimate about 3.2 million persons are living with chronic HCV infection. Um, this, um, this survey is conservative in that it, ex it, it includes only civilian population who are non-institutionalized, so it ex and it excludes um, um, incarcerated persons who have a high prevalence of hepatitis C, it doesn't really capture uh, homeless persons uh, as, a, as another example of a population that has a high prevalence. So this, we feel like this is a fairly uh, conservative estimate. With about 15,000 deaths per year, and that's on the rise, as I'll show you in a, in a moment. 
Um, this is a paper that uh, this graph is a paper is a is from a paper that uh, we published in the Annals of Internal Medicine this past February, showing the number of deaths associated with hepatitis C uh, in the tan line in contrast to deaths from hepatitis B in the dark line and in contrast to HIV in the red line. And as you can see, the number of deaths have grown associated with HCV. That's about a 50% increase between 1999 and 2007, uh, resulting in the no number of those deaths surpassing the number of deaths from HIV uh, AIDS in 2007. And that disparity has only gotten wider uh, in 2008 uh, data that's not uh, shown on this slide. These trends are a reflection of, in, in large part, with, uh, of uh, an epidemic of HCV transmission in earlier years before the virus was discovered in 1989. Before that time, transmission was much more frequent, with over 300,000 persons becoming infected with what was then called non-A, non-B hepatitis, from blood transfusion, uh, various in, uh, injection drug use practices and drug use practices, and also transmissions in the healthcare setting where um, uh, at a time where uh, universal precautions that we are more familiar with now uh, have had not yet been implemented, and there's sexual transmission as I'll show you in a moment. Uh, but uh, with the uh, advent of screening the blood supply and other uh, prevention strategies for injection drug users, those incident, that incidence has declined in more recent years to where we get about 15 to 20,000 cases, we believe, that's occurring. Shows you a graph, I don't, do we have a pointer? Yeah. This shows you some surveillance data from um, Massachusetts showing this age wave that really mimics that incidence wave I just showed you. So if you see that large incident wave, and then you keep in mind that three out of every four persons once infected remain infected, those people are moving through time now with this chronic infection. And that's what you're seeing as these cases are diagnosed and reported based on these, uh, these uh, uh, years of age. However, more recently, we're seeing the second wave uh, being joined by this larger wave of persons in their middle age years, these younger adults, older adolescents, people in their 20s are now becoming infected with hepatitis C and uh, increasing the number of case reports for that age group. When we need more information about this trend, but um, based on the data we do have, it looks like it's a phenomenon of um, um, young people living in the suburbs, the exurbs, the rural areas, um, equally male, female. This is in contrast to what we observed in the early years of the HIV epidemic where IDU-related HIV was much more of an inner-city minority problem. This looks more like an exurb rural uh, white um, um, phenomenon. And it looks like it's very much related to the abuse of narcotics like Oxycontin. And then people progress from oral use to injection drug use either because of tolerance or because of price. As we've had a rabbit young, white, equally male, female, uh, non-urban, previous Oxycontin users, uh, and, and oftentimes difficult for us to locate for investigations.
And indeed, persons who inject drugs are the, they are the major risk group for uh, HCV. In a recent meta-analysis, it estimated 64% of all injection drug users uh, globally are infected with hepatitis C. They account for about 60 to 70% of new infections uh, here in the United States. Once someone begins their injection uh, uh, behavior, uh, acquisition of HCV is fairly rapid. So you, it's really important if you're trying to prevent HCV transmission among injection drug users to capture them as early as possible in their injection um, uh, uh, period. Um, HCV transmission has declined in response to some HIV-related prevention activities, but uh, those, act those strategies do not work as well for HCV as it's about 10 times more common uh, I mean, 10 times more likely to be transmitted uh, than is HIV. Um, it's also important to point out that reinfection can occur among injection drug users. They can clear the primary infection, but then get reinfected, albeit at a lower risk uh, or lower rate, uh, because um, there does appear to be some um, immune priming from that uh, original infection. Um, the advent of, 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 of new therapies, particularly the ad prospect of oral uh, antivirals for hepatitis C, has really begun to raise the specter of can we use therapy as prevention for injection drug users like we, we do now do for HIV um, and reduce the force of infection. And this is just one example of a model showing that with fairly modest uh, in, uh, uh, modest treatment rates, you can get fairly pronounced decreases in prevalence over time as that force of infection, the number of infected persons in the social network of injection drug users uh, decreases. And so that's something that we're mindful of looking forward to that era of all uh, oral therapy that you'll be hearing more about in, in this um, uh, in seminar today. Uh, the other uh, mode of transmission is very important uh, globally, but also in this, in this country, is healthcare-associated uh, infections. Uh, it's, a, it's responsible for, uh, it's a major mode of transmission in, in some countries of the world, as, as is listed here they, uh, on the slide. But we get about one to two outbreaks reported to us every month from the United States, uh, from uh, dialysis clinics, from pain management clinics, oncology clinics. So they tend to be outpatient, but we, we have to be vigilant about uh, infection control uh, and diligent about infection control and, uh, because this virus is so easily transmissible that if there is a breach and the, given this high prevalence, HCV can be transmitted in, in these um, uh, settings that are not following good, um, good in, infection practices. Um, so we see outbreaks. We've also looked at older persons being reported with acute HCV and finding that exposure to the healthcare setting is an independent risk factor for hepatitis C for this age group, suggesting that, that they're having sort of incident, um, small incident, uh, cases that don't really reveal themselves as a large outbreak, but you get sort of incidental uh, breaches in infection control leading to transmission. Other modes of transmission, non-injection drug use can cause transmission, such as snorting cocaine, where you can get blood uh, contamination on a, you know, a, a, an appliance used for that uh, uh, drug use. 
uh, infants born to infected mothers are at risk, particularly if that mother is uh, uh, co-infected. Uh, right now, we do not recommend screening for uh, mothers for HCV because we really don't have a protective intervention to interrupt transmission. Perhaps that will change as therapy improves. Sexual transmission, about 14% of cases reported to CDC in the U.S. Uh, have only a heterosexual risk for transmission. However, if you look at long-term studies, studies of long-term partners, you see very, very rare uh, transmission, very, very low rates of transmission. So it's, uh, it's a, it, it can happen, it just doesn't happen very often heterosexually. The group that has the highest um, risk of sexual transmission appears to be HIV-positive gay men, where this has been reported in Europe for a number of years, large, a large uh, transmission risk, uh, and that has, now has been reported in, in New York City. Uh, and in some other city uh, areas. Household contact through, with incidental blood exposure, uh, toothbrushes, razors can, ha can have an effect, and healthcare workers are at risk through occupational exposures. Uh, we have, since 1998, we have recommended HCV um, screening based on risk, such as injection drug use, history of a blood transfusion before the blood supply was screened, or medical indications such as an elevated ALT. So that, those continue to be um, very important, and we continue to look for ways to refine those, like how many times should an injection drug user be screened to identify acute uh, infection? Um, uh, should sexual contacts of, uh, such as uh, of, um, HIV-positive gay men be screened, et cetera? So we're, we continue to refine our risk-based strategies However, we realize that they are, are insufficient in and of themselves because of the inherent barriers to a risk-based approach to testing because people are either reluctant to ask about risk or people are reluctant to talk about risk or in this high incidence period where they're being perhaps exposed in medical settings or others, they may not know about a risk. And are looking at various cohort studies between about 45 to 85% of persons in the United States uh, of this 3.2 million, we believe um, uh, have, are unaware of their infection. So we've been getting very interested to see about recognizing that of this 3.2 million persons, two out of three of those persons were born between 1945 and 1965, reflecting this large population who were young during this high incidence period, and now we're moving through time becoming um, uh, ill with HCV, uh, HCV and representing three out of every four persons who are dying of this infection. I'll give you one example of, uh, of the, uh, the lack of knowledge. This is data from the NHANE study uh, survey that I've already alluded to, showing that in that survey, when people were tested uh, as a participant in the survey and being found positive for hepatitis C, only about half of them knew of that infection before participating in the survey. And then we asked them why were they tested, only 4% were tested because of a risk. And again, re reflecting this inherent limitation of a risk-based approach, particularly for a risk that happened several decades ago, as is the case for most of these persons in this age, in the birth year cohort. HCV, uh, morbidity, mortality is on the rise. Uh, it already is responsible for one out of every three um, liver transplants. Uh, 
the cohort of persons followed in the VA system, which probably has the best data uh, of a, a persons in care, uh, are showing increases in, in rates of liver cancer and cirrhosis uh, for, that, uh, for that group. And all of this translates into a lot of HCV-related costs to care for persons through their disease and obviously for end-stage management such as transplantation. And this is, this is the health model that I've alluded to that many of the observational cohort studies only follow people for 10 or 20 years, but we projected that out over the course of a lifetime and projected that this morbidity, mortality rates that we're seeing now, uh, if we don't do something different, or is going to continue uh, and, and continue to climb um, into the next decade. Fortunately, with these new therapies, we have an opportunity to bend this curve. And that's what public health is all about, is to try to re reduce morbidity and mortality that's preventable. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about HCV therapy today, which is, uh, which is really great. It's almost like the cavalry coming at, the, you know, at, the, at, this, at this crisis point in the epidemic as you have rising mortality and, uh, in a large population. But to benefit from these improvements in therapy that we're going to be hearing about and learning about today, we have to get people into care. And testing is the link that's going to get those persons uh, identified, and then we have to take that extra effort and get them into care, and then have you take care of them. So we think a one-time test for HCV uh, for all persons born during 1945 and 1965 made sense because there's a high prevalence of HCV. This, uh, it's about 3% uh, percent prevalence for this population, five times higher than the prevalence of HCV for other adults. Uh, the burden of disease and death from hepatitis C is growing. Uh, care and treatment can cure infection currently, with the prospects of that uh, uh, being even more so in the future. Uh, the efficacy and safety is improving, which is also uh, critical. And then we have a large proportion of persons remaining untested and unaware of their infection. So we wanted to do something different. We went through a, uh, a grade-based um, evidence review. Um, uh, Rebecca Morgan is, uh, is in the audience and was one of the key leaders of this um, evidence uh, review, look, examining the harms and benefits of uh, this strategy of testing this population and linking them to care and treatment, looking at issues such as um, stigma, a loss of insurance, side effects of treatment, uh, and the like, then examining the benefits of being in the care and uh, looking at data such as from the VA showing that uh, for persons who do um, receive treatment and achieve a sustained virologic response or an SVR, have a 50% uh, reduced risk of all-cause mortality, or looking at multiple studies of the rates of liver cancer or hepatocellular carcinoma and showing reduced risk of um, of that outcome by 70% for persons who achieve an SVR. Um, we also um, recognize uh, that alcohol use is a powerful um, cofactor that accelerates the progression of HCV disease. Um, about in the NHANE study, about 50 to 60% of people who are HCV infected drink at least two drinks a day. Which is, uh, which is more than the CDC recommends for people with a normal liver, let alone with someone with a damaged liver. 
So we believe that um, just getting people into care and getting them counseled and, uh, and uh, motivate them to reduce their alcohol use it could be a very uh, protective strategy that could delay their need for therapy uh, down the road. So we also looked at the benefits of a, um, a, a, brief, alcohol inter a brief counseling intervention to reduce uh, alcohol use. Uh, and there are multiple studies, although not in HCV-infected persons per se, that shows that these brief interventions do result in declines in alcohol use um, um, among patients who receive them. We've, we then modeled, and this, this model was also published in the Annals of Internal Medicine last February, showing that with full implementation of this strategy, we could uh, identify 800,000 persons who currently are unaware of their infection, uh, save uh, between 80 to 120,000 deaths. The left column, we only looked at a pegylated interferon ribavirin because that's, that was the only licensed therapy when we started this exercise. We then uh, added, uh, we then recalculated uh, this, um, this model using uh, telaprevir as the direct acting agent, as an example, uh, to factor in the increased cost. Um, and that's, that's the differences here. Um, and then we looked at the, the, the benefit of this through the quality adjusted life year. What, what, what do you, what's the benefit versus the cost of this intervention and using you have about 30, you, you, you can save a quality uh, uh, with an expenditure of $35,700. So how does that compare to other uh, interventions? Uh, it compares quite well to other interventions currently considered good medical practice in the United States, such as uh, cholesterol screening, breast cancer screening, hypertension uh, screening, uh, really is really in that, that ballpark. Of what, of what are the other strategies that are considered to be good medical care. So taking that together, CDC uh, adopted the recommendation that um, adults born during 1945 through 1965 should receive a one-time test for HCV without a, the need for a prior ascertainment of a risk factor. For those that found positive, they should receive a brief alcohol screening and intervention followed by a referral to care and treatment. So this, this is not a replacement of our other recommendations, but rather an augmentation or an addition. So we, have, we continue to, and hopefully I've demonstrated, we continue need to, to be cognizant of risk, but this large prevalent population also needs to be um, um, a focus of our prevention efforts and screening efforts. Um, so, in summary, I mean, epidemiologic challenges, it's important to always recognize that uh, HCV transmission continues to occur. Um, incidence appears to be increasing in some populations, particularly older adults, uh, sorry, older adolescents and young adults in the um, uh, Northeast and the Midwest, perhaps in the Appalachia region as well. Uh, the burden of chronic infection and related disease um, is large. Uh, and this large population of persons with, living with chronic HCV um, is increasingly becoming ill uh, with HCV-related um, liver disease uh, in particular. Um, 
CDC regards hepatitis C as a health disparity for persons born between 1945 and 1965. Uh, we think this is an urgent public health matter when you see a 50% rise in mortality um, in, a, in, a, in, in a population this large. Um, and with most of them not knowing their status, we feel like something needs to be done different, and that's why we've adopted this recommendation. Um, um, and this is particularly uh, timely because of this prospect of improving therapy, which will open up um, more opportunities for treatment, particularly as treatment duration becomes shorter, um, the safety profiles become uh, better, uh, and patients find the, and physicians and, and clinicians find the treatments more tolerable. So in summary, uh, HCV prevention from the CDC perspective really requires a comprehensive uh, approach, uh, recognizing primary prevention, preventing uh, transmission, as well as secondary prevention, preventing the consequences of chronic infection. So we continue to need risk-based prevention strategies to detect and prevent new infections while recognizing that a one-time HCV test of persons born during 1945 to 1965 um, is a cost-effective strategy that can reduce uh, uh, morbidity and mortality. We need to begin to recognize that H and regard HCV therapy as a prevention tool that can help us prevent morbidity and also prevent uh, transmission. But what's needed to bring, make all that happen are strategies for an effective testing that can then, and then, and then uh, the means to link people into to care and treatment. Um, and that's what we're um, uh, in the midst of doing um, uh, currently uh, with education in our No More Hepatitis campaign. I have a lapel pin to prove it. Uh, we have a variety of, of, of education opportunities for clinicians. That's why we feel very important to come to IAS USA uh, type of uh, sponsored events to speak with you. Um, and, um, and we are also sponsoring uh, HCV uh, testing programs in uh, 32 cities, which just started um, uh, this year. And they're actually meeting down um, at, the, at the CDC headquarters um, uh, today. So I'd be more than happy to talk about implementing this uh, guideline. Any other questions you have about HCV epidemiology? And um, thank you for your time today.